Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a sermon by Dr. James S. Stewart. You know, there's a tradition of great Scottish preaching, and James Stewart stands in that tradition. He was an acclaimed preacher both in his native Scotland and in North America, and the sermon we're going to hear today, Christ and the City, was preached in 1966 at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Tell us about this sermon by Dr. James S. Stewart, Dr. Smith. Dr. James S. Stewart presents a sermon that I think can be heard today in 2016. It's relevant. Uh, It is logically progressive. It's organized. Christ and the city, taken from Luke 1941, and Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Mount Olivet, um, Palm Sunday, great triumphal entry. Here's a man who is very eclectic. He's weaving together scripture and history and poetry and literature and biography, all of those things. And the text itself is the king. And these things are used to elucidate uh, and to illuminate the text so that we see it visually. This is, I think, um, the strength of this sermon. There is a personal point of view. In other words, he is forcing us to see what Jesus saw. What caused Jesus to weep? Even though there were others around there uh, celebrating the um, particular Jewish feast, zealots and priests and scribes uh, and rulers. But Jesus, evidently, according to Stuart, is the only one to weep. Why did he weep? Well, he's so organized, Dean, that he gives us his three emphases. He wept because of the fleeting impermanence of earthly glory. Then he gives us a portion of the text that relates to that. And then he applies it and illustrates it. Then he moves to the second, the groping blindness of human ideals. And then he gives us a portion of the text that applies to that. Then he takes and um, gives us contemporary application and moves on to illustration. And finally, he gives us the urgent crises that um, they negated in terms of the divine opportunities. Um, and he moves on and shares with us and said, you didn't know the day of divine visitation. And then he applies that in our own lives. He walks all the way through that by taking and allowing the text to address the crisis and then bringing us back to a place where Jesus is speaking to what he saw in terms of Christ in the city. Then he closes by doing what I think is wonderful, punctuating the affirmative in the conclusion and saying that one day there will be a time in which there will be no tears. There will be joy. He quotes from Psalm 30 and 5, weeping endures for a night. Joy comes in the morning. Psalm 126 and that last wonderful statement, the Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus in the new Jerusalem. I just think this is powerfully packed, wonderfully illustrated and contemporarily relevant for us today. You know, this is a sermon that is biblical. It's evangelical. It's pertinent, it's pastoral, Uh, it speaks right into our present moment, thinking about the great theme of urbanization in our world, 
Let's listen to James S. Stewart as he preached in 1966 on Christ and the city. In the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 19, verse 41, And when Jesus was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. There are different ways of seeing the city, any great city, Jerusalem, London, Paris, or New York. The youth in a remote provincial village dreams of the city far away and sees it as the gateway to adventure. The man who's out to make money sees the city as the place for carving out a successful career. The countryman, doomed to toil all his days in city streets, sees it with the eyes of a prisoner and an exile, a place to escape from. They're all seeing the city from different angles. But what is it they are seeing? Not surely the city as it truly is. Not the beating heart of Birmingham or Glasgow or Chicago or Berlin. Not certainly what Christ was seeing that Palm Sunday when he came over the brow of Olivet and beheld Jerusalem and stood still and wept. Do you remember Wordsworth looking out across London from Westminster Bridge in the dawn? Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. Do you remember Thomas Carlyle's philosopher in his high attic above the roar of city streets? I sit above it all. I am alone with the stars. So, when Wordsworth saw the city, he grew lyrical over it. When Carlyle saw the city, he philosophized over it. When Jesus saw the city, he wept over it. This is the difference. And it forces on us the question whether we've ever really stood there with Jesus on Olivet. Have we ever looked as he looked on the crowded ways of men? Of course, there are those who deliberately choose not to see the city as it is. They realize that the vision might disturb their tranquility or even break their heart. This is why thousands of people can dwell in a city all their lives and never really know it, its gallantry and brotherhood, its solitude and shame. Here was Jerusalem. I imagine that of all the thousands of pilgrims streaming up to the festival in the city on that Palm Sunday, Jesus was the only one who wept at the sight. Some saw merely the end of an arduous pilgrimage. They'd come a long way. They were tired, footsore, exhausted. Thank God we're there at last. Thank God for the end of the road. Others saw the city through the eyes of patriotism and pride. Land of hope and glory. Down with Rome and up with Jury. Defiance to all dictatorships. Jerusalem, our mother, shall be free. Others, with deeper penetration, saw the city as the focus of a spiritual faith. They saw it as a sanctuary and a shrine. Dear city of God, glorious things are spoken of thee. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the thousands of pilgrims drew near Jerusalem that day and gazed on it with the most varied emotions in their hearts. Only one pilgrim stood there, 
and looked and wept. Before we ask what he was seeing that made him weep, I'd like you to reflect for a moment how moving those tears of Jesus are. For one thing, we have to remember they were the tears of the bravest men who ever lived. Not an atom of the pious sentimentalist in his nature, manliness incarnate. There's always something terrible in the sight of a brave man's tears. David's passionate crying, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Peter, after denying his master, rushing out into the night and sobbing bitterly. And here was Jesus, strong, unsentimental, the lion of the tribe of Judah, breaking down at the sight of Jerusalem. Consider, too, the contrast with what had gone immediately before. Then the cry had been, Ride on, ride on in majesty. For Palm Sunday was a day of pageant, cavalcade, and festival, full of tumult and shouting and acclamation. Loud hosannas were still echoing on the morning air. Hail, son of David! Christ the royal master leads against the foe. The clans were gathering. The tribes were mustering. The king was coming into his own. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And Jesus had accepted the demonstration and encouraged it. It was his open challenge and defiance of the powers of darkness. He would ride into his capital as the king of Israel and the master of the world. Follow a light that leaps and spins. Follow the fire unfurled. For riseth up against realm and rod a thing forgotten, a thing downtrod. The last lost giant, even God, is risen against the world. That was the setting. And then suddenly, without warning, this bewildering, incongruous breakdown, as the demonstrators regarded it, this shattering sight, the royal son of David weeping, the warrior king in tears. How moving is this moment! when you contrast it with what went before. Consider, too, this further fact. Those tears of Jesus must mean that there are tears in the heart of the Eternal. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Men in every age have tried to probe the power behind the universe. Some have called it a blind indifference. Some an aloof intelligence, some an implacable hostility. But to stand with Jesus on Olivet is to know differently. Like as a father pitieth his children, so pitieth the Lord. The innermost government of the universe is an infinite compassion. But now comes the crucial question. When Jesus looked on Jerusalem that day, what brought the tears starting to his eyes? His own words give the answer. He saw three things. He saw, first, the fleeting impermanence of earthly glory. The days are coming when thine enemies shall compass thee round and lay thee level with the ground and not leave one stone upon another. With his prophetic insight, Jesus saw what actually happened there in Jerusalem forty years later when the red ruin of Rome 
rained down on the pride of Israel, the temple was razed to the ground, and the city went up in flames. He saw that all Jerusalem's glory lay in the past, that all its great men were gone, glimmering through the dream of things that were, that all its pomp of yesterday was one with Nineveh and Tyre. Amid the shouts and hosannas, Jesus heard a deeper undertone, the funeral knell of the city that had thought it was immortal. On what are we basing our confidence for the future? Every civilization, every culture, every secular society has its day and ceases to be, an insubstantial pageant, as Shakespeare told us, that leaves not a rack behind. The Bible has always insisted that the world passes away, not seeking by that to plunge us in fatalism and melancholy, but concerned to win us to a firmer confidence and a surer hope, who trusts in God's unchanging love, builds on the rock that naught can move. What of our own life? Jesus looked down forty years and saw Jerusalem's end. How many years of our life's story does he see still to come? In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, in the evening it is cut down and withereth. And so we build our futile, frail defenses, health, possessions, business stability, financial security, to keep the inevitable at bay. It's such a hopeless effort. Yes, and so absolutely unnecessary. For listen, one final security remains. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. What then have we to do? What but take that abiding word into our heart and join our mortal nature to the immortality of God? Nothing can touch the life in which Christ has his dwelling and his throne. But Jesus, looking at Jerusalem, saw more than the fleeting impermanence of earthly glory. He saw also the groping blindness of human ideals. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Jerusalem was blind to her own interests. There were thousands of people then praying for the prosperity of Israel, zealots, priests, scribes, rulers, and looking for it in the wrong place, the zealots in revolution, the priests in church ordinances and ceremonies, the scribes in dictated morals, the rulers in power politics, and none of them knew where Jerusalem's true peace lay. Still, after 19 centuries, Jesus weeps over the blindness of human ideals. If you had known, at least in this your day, surely after two world cataclysms in one generation, you should have known, at least in this day when your science has liberated a force 
atrocious enough to engulf humanity and wreck the world, if you had known the things which belong to your peace. But now they are hid from your eyes. Of course we need for a peaceful world all the international machinery that has been created. But why is world peace not coming? We need for a peaceful, prosperous nation all the social planning of which we are capable. But why are there such frightful anomalies still? We need for a strong, united church all that world councils can devise. But why are we still waiting for the fire from heaven? We need for a peaceful conscience and a victorious life all the moral effort we can put into the fight. But why this dull, shoddy mediocrity and monotony of defeat? Is this perhaps the root of our trouble? That we set out to plan for peace and prosperity, vaguely hoping that somehow, when we have done it, the kingdom of God will then be added unto us. And Jesus says, Your planning is all wrong. Your priorities are fatally confused. You must begin at the other end. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Put God's will first, and peace will follow. Turn back, O man, forswear thy foolish ways. And God, who in Christ has reconciled all things to himself, can make us the ambassadors of this world-rectifying, life-renewing reconciliation. This is the peace of Jerusalem. Jesus, gazing on Jerusalem that day, saw the impermanence of earthly glory and the blindness of human ideals. This, finally, he saw the urgent crisis of divine opportunity. Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Do you grasp what our Lord meant by that haunting word, the day of visitation? He meant a divine encounter and confrontation. He meant that on that day God himself was visiting his people. He meant that there and then, in that very moment, the Lord of hosts had come to the gate of Israel and the door of Jerusalem and stood there knocking. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the frightening thing was, they couldn't recognize their deliverer when they saw him. This was the tragedy. But surely it will not be repeated today. Surely we can stay those tears of Jesus now. For the urgent crisis of divine opportunity is with us once again. This is indeed our day of visitation. Jesus has wept long over the world for its blindness and rebellion. He's wept long over his church for its complacency and disunity. He has wept long over your life and mine for our compromising mediocrity 
our weak self-love and guilty pride that have been his pilot and his Judas, our cowardice in witness, our pettiness, our dull subservience to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But perhaps even Jesus can trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. At any rate, the marvelous thing is that he has not cast us off. He's not cast our nation off or our church. He has not cast any of us off. And today God is coming to us again, the God of infinite patience and compassion. There's not one of us who has given our God a fraction of the love we might have given. There's not one of us who has served him as we ought. There's not one of us whose response to Christ's sacrifice does not need to be reaffirmed. If in our conscience he is speaking now, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I and ye would not? My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Must we not here and now, wherever we are, make a new vow and register a fresh decision and go out to serve him with our life? Then indeed for Christ our Lord, who cried over Jerusalem, the ancient promise will be fulfilled. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall come again with shouts of joy, bringing his harvest home. Am I mistaken in hearing something of that harvest shout of the joy of Christ across the Jerusalem of our baffled and bewildered generation, across the new Israel, which is the holy church throughout all the world? Yes, and across the citadel of your life and mine as the Lord God claims his own. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my joy and crown, my temple and my throne. This is the peace of Jerusalem. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We are so thankful to Regent College for their longtime friendship. Regent Audio has kindly given us permission to use this lecture. You can find more lectures by many others, such as J.I. Packer, James Houston, and Gordon Fee at www.regentaudio.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>